Turn to Ephesians 2. Continuing on our study of Ephesians, I'll read Ephesians 2, 1 through 6. If you're new, um, we just try to study through books of the Bible and go verse by verse, sometimes spend a few weeks on one verse, sometimes do a few verses in one week. But the real goal is just that God would speak to us um, in and through His Word. Ephesians 2, 1-6. Follow as I read, this is the Word of God. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Amen. We've been in uh, chapter 2 for a few weeks now, and thus far we've focused on two major contrasts in this section um, that Paul is making. One is, we were dead in our sins, but even when we were dead in our sins, God made us alive in Christ. Um, Death was our original state. And it says that death has a trajectory in this life. We were spiritually dead, following our spiritual deadness in the ways of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, which is Satan. Um, We were following evil. Even if, you know, it's hard to think about. It's easier to think about when somebody's off and you kind of have this picture of like, yeah, they're a convict. But that's what we're all doing in our sin. Um, My two-year-old, when he disregards his mother's instruction and is disrespectful to her. He's breaking commands of God and he's saying, no, I'm going to follow death. Um, That's our natural disposition. But even when we were dead in our sins, God made us alive in Christ. The second contrast we've seen is that we were children of God's wrath, but now in Christ we are recipients of God's grace and mercy. Fully deserving of wrath, but God has made a way to pour out His grace and mercy on us, satisfying His wrath in Christ. So death to life, mercy to, uh, I mean wrath to mercy and grace. There's a lot more in here about grace. Uh, There's the statement in verse 5, by grace you have been saved, and then a lot more than that in 7 through 10, and we're going to camp out there next week. Um to see what else is said about grace. Today, we're going to focus on verse 6. So Paul is building on what he's already said thus far about death to life. We were dead in our sins, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, He made us alive together with Christ. Verse 6, following that thought, and He raised us up with Him. He made us alive and He raised us up with Him 
and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So God raised Jesus from the dead and brought Him back to heaven. God raised us from spiritual death, and the text says He seated us with Him in heaven in Christ. So that's what it says, but I'm still seated here on a stool in a church, and you're seated in an uncomfortable chair in the same place. So what does it mean we're seated here? What does it mean that we're seated uh, in heaven? The first thing I want us to notice is that uh, this is a continuation of the theme, union with Christ, which is the main theme running throughout the beginning of this letter. Remember chapter 1, verse 3, if you're still open to Ephesians, you can look back there. It it serves as a sort of umbrella statement, um, this burst of praise from, from Paul to God. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So Paul begins the letter by praising God for the fact that he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He then goes on to expound on that thought. Verse 4, God chose us in Christ before the world began. Verse 5, He predestined us for adoption through Christ. Verse 6, He blessed us with His grace in the Beloved, or in Christ. Verse 7, in Christ we have redemption. Verse 11, in Christ we have an inheritance. And then back to our text today, chapter 2, verse 6, God has made us alive together with Christ. He's raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ. So again, we see it's just this continuation of union with Christ. All salvation is in Christ. There is no salvation outside of Christ. Um, in Ephesians 2.6, Paul is developing one of the many blessings of this great salvation that God has blessed us with in Christ. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Here we're learning about another one of the blessings. We've been seated with Christ in heaven. Or to say it even stronger, Christ is in heaven and we are in Christ. Of course, we're still here on earth, but we are united to Jesus Christ by faith. Um, He is in heaven. We are in Him in a very real sense, in a very true sense. We are seated with Him in heaven. Now, I think I could try to explain it 17 different ways, and we'd still land in that same place of like, it's really hard for my mind to grasp. So um, I think maybe just to think about some of the implications of this is to, to help us better understand. So the first thing I want to say is in regard to Satan and demons. The effect of, or uh, what are the implications of the fact that we're seated um, with Christ in regard to Satan and demons? And I'm not just pulling that out of thin air. That's actually one of the kind of backdrops of the whole letter. Uh, But if you look back at chapter 1, verse 20, and and following that, we learn that when Jesus rose from the dead, God took Him back to heaven and established Him as head over all things, or as the chief authority over all things, heaven and earth. Uh, It says that God seated Jesus far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. And we're going to see in just a minute... Um, that when Paul says rulers and authorities, he's actually referring to the rulers and authorities in the spiritual world, Satan and demons. So one of the things that Paul is focusing our attention on, even in chapter 1, is that Jesus has authority over Satan and demons, over the rulers and authorities. So 
We are seated in Christ in heaven. He is enthroned as the chief authority over all things, including Satan and demons. And, and one of the things that we should consider about this being seated with Christ is what it means for us in regard to Satan and demons. Maybe some of this is just uh, purely uh, intellectual exercise for you. Maybe some of you emotionally have actually uh, feared some of these things and so it pr- could bring some comfort uh, that certainly has for me. But before we get there, let me just kind of put my cards on the table. Um, maybe you don't ever think about the unseen spiritual realm. Maybe you kind of think that's just kind of a story and you're not even sure it's real. Um, just so you know where I'm at, Satan is real and demons are everywhere. We live in a spiritual war and there are only two sides. There's only two sides. Paul makes this clear at the beginning of Ephesians 2. People are either dead in their sins or they're alive in Jesus Christ. Those who are dead follow Satan. Those who are alive are in Christ and follow Christ. So no matter what anyone else would have us believe, there is no neutral ground. There is light. There is darkness. There is death. There is life. We're in a spiritual war. We're, turn to Ephesians 6. We're going to get into this more in chapter 6. and um, uh, We'll talk about it a lot. But for now, I'm just going to read Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. It says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities. See, there you have it. He's talking about the spiritual realm. He calls them rulers and authorities. Against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So, um, obviously, God is concerned to reveal that this is reality to us. I've thought about this a lot. In fact, and maybe I've said in here before, but as a new believer, I was probably overly infatuated with this spiritual realm, Satan and demons. Um, Maybe not you. Maybe you're more on the other side. I read a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones This week he said, uh, We have all become so psychological in our attitude and thinking. We are ignorant of this great objective fact, the being, the existence of the devil and his fiery darts. That was 1950. And certainly our world has been a lot more psychologized since 1950. So maybe, maybe we've been sucked into that. Of course, I think there are those who overemphasize the devil. Uh, at the expense of owning personal responsibility and personal sin. Everything's the devil. Well, not everything's the devil. You know, the devil's not everywhere. The devil's a created being uh, leading the powers of darkness. I think, you know, demons are everywhere, meaning there's lots of them, but they're not in two places at once. They're created beings. Um, So... We don't want to uh, only emphasize the devil and think that everything's the devil. And we also don't want to overcorrect to the other side and just forget that Satan and demons are there altogether. In the Bible, God reveals the world to us as it actually is. You know, something that happened in, in our sin in the fall is we're upside down in our sin And everything's really muddy and murky, and it's like we're in a snow globe and we can't really get our bearings. But these are our bearings. This is where we find the rock, the footing, the 
Things get put right side up. This is the truth. And so He reveals to us the world as it actually is. And He saw fit in revealing the world as it actually is. He saw fit to include a lot about Satan and demons. You just scan the New Testament Gospels and notice how many references to Satan and demons. Um, I think one of the reasons is to show that Jesus has authority over Satan and demons. The Old Testament as well. Lots of examples in the Old Testament of sorcery and just that whole spirit realm. Um, Paul says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we don't want to make the mistake of forgetting that they're there. On the other end of the spectrum, we don't want to live in fear. Um, in the opening lines of the screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis's book, where he deals with this issue of Satan and demons, um, he says there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist and a magician with the same delight. Of course, a materialist is one who believes only in what he sees, so how could I ever believe in Satan and demons? I don't see them. Uh, And they're saying, yay, we love those people because they don't think we're here, and we are. Um, Or a magician being one who is overly infatuated and in too deep in that realm, summoning spirits and you name it. Um, Or you could think like a medium. That's what he means there by magician. So, That being established, uh, I want us to consider the fact that we're seated with Christ in heaven in relation to the existence of Satan and demons. As I said earlier, I was, as a new Christian, very aware of the existence of Satan and demons and was in a group of Christians that I think had an unhealthy interest in that world, um, which ultimately led me to live in fear and... uh, Every, every night. I mean, just, you know, you think like, are you four? No, I just think that I shouldn't have been going where I was going and dwelling on the things that I was de- dwelling on. Everything was about the spiritual world and, and that must be demons and that must be... And so then you get into the whole, you know, I don't know, I just think if you want to go find something, you can. And um, made me think about this. I mean, I have a family member who has seen a medium for a large portion of their life, um, they don't go back because nothing happens there. They go back because there's real contact. It may sound silly. It ain't just silly. They're, they're getting something of what they desire. Now, I think they're getting demons, but uh, there's real contact when you go seeking, and that's all I'm saying. Is I, it may sound strange, but it caused me to live in a lot of fear. Um... I was very aware that they were more powerful than me. But I did not understand Jesus' authority over them. And, and understanding Jesus' authority over them is, has become supremely comfortable to me. Uh, turn to Colossians 2. Comforting to me. <clears throat> so maybe you can't relate to having been excessively interested or engaged in the spiritual realm... But you can at least understand the relevance of what is being said here in this context to the Ephesians. Um, The occult 
practices were big in Ephesus, so it's like New Orleans on steroids. You know, I mean, it was just a main part of the fabric of the culture. Lots of spirit mediums, lots of these magician types. In Acts 19.19, we learned that some of these folks were converted to Christ, and it says, a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. So this is what happened in Ephesus. Paul goes in as a missionary, an evangelist to Ephesus, starts preaching the gospel, people get saved, and, you know, the magic arts, the dark arts, um, were a big part of that culture. So maybe a little different than what we know, but it was very relevant to them. So one of the things that the original readers of this letter were focusing on and learning probably a lot in their early Christian discipleship was that Jesus was enthroned with authority over Satan and demons. Um, And not only that, Paul says we are seated with him. So this passage in Colossians 2, we'll read 13 through 15, um, has just been very helpful for me and continues to be helpful to this day, thinking about Jesus' authority over Satan and demons. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. What a great few statements. I mean, you want some more assurance in your salvation? Go back to those verses and consider yet again what Jesus has done taking all of the sinful debt that, that uh, stood against you, with all of the legal demands shouting against you that you should be punished, and He nailed it to the cross. He paid for your sins. But there's something else that happened on the cross, and we get that in verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. There's that rulers and authorities again, the, the Satan and demons. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him, in Christ, on the cross. So, um, the picture is, think of like a wartime, um, the army goes out to battle, and they conquer the, the neighboring army, and they bring that, uh, those troops and those people back through the cheering crowds of the homeland in chains, Right? I mean, everybody's ecstatic, our people have won, our freedom is sustained, and here comes the enemy being carted in chains um, into our prisons or whatever it is. That's the picture. Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities on the cross. He put them to open shame, meaning He defeated them. And He bound them in chains and walked them through the cheering crowds. And so that's the image that has brought incredible comfort to me is just to say, I don't know what's going on out there. Part of it is, you know, a little strange and scary because I don't know what's going on out there. But I do know that Jesus wins. He's already won. He's already disarmed them. They're already under His authority and care. Um, He's already bound them in chains. So, they're allowed to exist, and this is some of the things that I don't, I don't have great answers for you why, but they're allowed to exist for as long as God deems necessary, um, but they're under His authority, and we know how this thing is going to end. They're already bound by Him. They've already been defeated. Jesus wins. 
So after he put the rulers and authorities to open shame on the cross, defeating Satan and sin, you, you got to think about it. Satan, when Jesus died, has to be thinking, I win, right? Little did he know, the death was actually the victory. I mean, the death was actually taking what Satan had brought about in the fall, in sin, and paying for it, and dealing with it. So, not only did he put them to open shame on the cross, he rose from the grave defeating death, that other great enemy that sin brought about. He was taken back to heaven. He was given chief authority by God over everything. And this is where he is now. Reigning in heaven with authority over everything. Satan and demons included. And Satan and the demons know it. And we are in Christ. We are seated in Christ in heaven. So a couple of things that I want to think about here. Um, first, if you ever find yourself living in fear of Satan and demons... And I'm telling you, you might think it's crazy today, and you might find yourself in that spot another day. Um, you at least now have somewhere you can go in the Scriptures to remind yourself of whose you are and who He is. Colossians 2, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Um, he rules over them now. They do what He says, or they're not allowed to go outside of what He allows. Um, so, And then you can go back to Ephesians 1. And you know, we read, Jesus is alive. He rose from the dead. He was taken back to heaven where He rules now over everyone and everything, including Satan and demons. Whatever their role is, it's under His absolute, sovereign, good control. Um, and then you can go to Ephesians 2.6. And we are seated with Him. He is going to care for us. I would think particularly when it comes to the enemy of our souls. So, um, second thing, if Jesus has authority over Satan and demons, and we are in Him, even we have some measure of authority over Satan and demons. And I think that's where I perverted that whole thing and was just going out into the places where I should have gone. But anyway. Um, but think about it this way. Think about some of the great evils of our day. How about abortion? I said earlier, there's only two teams. There's only light, there's only darkness. Do you believe that either God is behind it or Satan's behind it? I mean... That's all there is. That's what the world is made up of. And uh, make no mistake that Satan and demons are behind abortion, as they were behind the Holocaust, as they're behind all these things. And um, so not only have millions of babies been murdered in the womb, but the way things are heading, I, I think that more and more children will just simply be left as orphans. It's just the natural trajectory of the, the way that the world is leading. If self-satisfaction is the ultimate goal, children are not going to fit into that goal structure very well. They don't always satisfy self. Sometimes they tax self, don't they? So we've seen that with abortion. I, I suspect we'll see that more and more with children in orphanages, just... I don't want to do it. It's about me. 
They're bothering me. Just this week, Tiffany was showing me something on Facebook. A mother went to jail for one night and never came back. Left her five kids as orphans, all of them under 10. Um, So how should we think about this? Well, the days are evil. That's one way we should think about it. Um, But can we do something about it? We, We have some measure of authority in this realm over the powers of darkness because we're with Christ. So can we do something about it? Um, in light of the evils that I've mentioned, here's one thing that we can do about it. Adopt. Jonathan Todd has often said something like this to our staff, and uh, I think it's very good. Abortion will go away, um, or will go way down, when the church shows up and says, we will take your baby. Also, If adoption were to become the norm for Christians in our day, orphanages would not be nearly as full. So think about it. Think about it from this angle. We were dead in our sins. We were spiritual orphans. We were children of God's wrath, not children of God and His family, but subject to His wrath. But God poured out His grace and mercy on us. He rescued us and He adopted us as His sons and daughters in Christ. Now... We certainly don't have the power to save someone eternally, but we do have the opportunity to imitate God's rescuing, adopting love in Christ. Um, Of all people in the world, Christians have the most reason to adopt. I think it's one of the most tactical moves that the church can make to fight the powers of darkness. Now, it's not easy. We've got multiple people in here that can attest to that. Uh, In fact, it's probably harder in many ways than, let's say, raising biological children. Um, But we can say to the powers of darkness, we know that you lose in the end, but we want you to feel the weight of that loss now. We know you wanted that baby dead, but we're going to go get them. Better than that, we're going to raise them up to know and love your enemy, the Lord. So my hope and prayer is that uh, adoption will become a main part of the fabric of not only our church, but the church at large, particularly, I think, in response to the evils of our day. Now, and I know this, many will say I'm not called to that, and I respect the fact that not everyone is called to adopt. Um, I'm not about to say if you don't do that, uh, then you're not a Christian or you're not being a good Christian. I don't believe that for a second. Although I do think this, that verbiage can often be in uh, just replacing an unwillingness to act. Well, I'm not called to that. You know, that's a convenient way to say, I'm not going to do that. Um, I read a quote from Francis Chan this week. He said this. He said, why not default to action until you hear a voice from, a voice from heaven telling you not um, or telling you to wait? For example, why not assume you should adopt kids unless you hear a voice telling you not to. Wouldn't that seem more biblical since God has told us in James 1.27 that true religion is to care for widows and orphans? I like that. And I'll say this. I know that um, not everyone's going to adopt, but as a community, we can be champions of adoption. Uh, All of us can be 
gladly for adoption as a primary way that we engage um, in this spiritual warfare. So by simple things like getting involved with Bethany or Life Choices or um, maybe making significant personal sacrifices in order to save a large chunk of money to give to someone that you know wants to adopt. Um, And of course, some will adopt. In fact, there are three families that I know of going through the adoption process right now in our class. Adoption is not the only way to exercise this authority over the powers of darkness, but it is one very good way that I hope we can all, regardless of whether we all adopt, that we can all be champions for. Um, So, we're thinking about some of the implications of us being seated with Christ in heaven. He has authority over everyone and everything. Number one, in regard to Satan and demons. Number two, let's think about it from another angle. Um, We are united with Jesus in heaven. Now let's think about the implications of that for our welcome into heaven. Okay? When we die, when we stand before God. Um, Maybe you struggle to believe, I know we all do from time to time, maybe you struggle to believe that God has really forgiven you of all of your sin. So here's another verse in your arsenal to, to preach the gospel to yourself. How do, we spite, how do we fight this spiritual war? Ephesians 6 will tell us, and um, I'll just mention some of these things, but it talks about the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, which is Jesus' righteousness, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, the gospel of peace, the shield of faith. So basically, we believe the Word. We believe the gospel, Jesus for us. And we believe it by faith. And our faith serves as a shield for the fiery darts of guilt and shame and doubt and fear that, that the enemy shoots at us. We must fight our guilt and our shame and our doubt and our fear with the truth of who God says that we are in Christ and where He says that we are already. Ephesians 2.6 can help us with that. So I, I was uh, talking to someone this week who had heard a gospel presentation in the past that said something like, when you stand before God, all of your sins, all of your sins of thought and desire and action will be on a movie screen, you know, in front of everyone. Um, and all of your sins are going to be displayed, you know, before you. Of course, the design of this is to get people to think about how sinful we actually are um, and how much we all need the Savior. But my friend asked me this week, do you think that really like all of my sins are going to be on the screen? I'll say, uh, first of all, yes, I do. Now, I'm not sure there's going to be any movie screens involved. And I'm not sure whether anyone else will see that. But when you stand before God, I am confident that you will be completely exposed. You will be standing before God Almighty. He is holy Holy, holy. Imagine the contrast of His perfect holiness and your sinfulness. We're talking about my, we were talking about this and my friend said, gosh, what would I say? I guess I would say, God, uh, you had better hurry up and throw me into hell because I'm a sinner. It reminds me of Isaiah 6 when Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah says, Woe is me for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He sees God 
And he essentially says what my friend said, uh, you better throw me into hell because I'm unclean and you're not. When a sinner stands before God, that is a right response. But you know what happens right after Isaiah says this is there's this angelic being that flies by and touches a coal to his mouth, says, behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Um, so I told my friend, I said, I don't think your response is crazy. It's like Isaiah. But you know what? No sooner than you get your response, you better throw me to, into hell, no sooner than you get that out of your mouth, Jesus will say, as your advocate and your redeemer and your savior, whom you are with now and you will be with then, he will say, I redeemed you. I paid for your sins. You are forgiven. I forgave you in full on the cross. I've been holding your inheritance since then. God the Father will say, I chose you. I adopted you in Christ. He will say, when I saved you, I seated you in Christ in heaven. Even though you've been on earth, your place has been here all along. So I do think that every last one of our sins will be exposed. But I think that this means that we will be as primed as ever to receive the gospel. Our sin will be the most mortifying that it has ever been. Every last one of our sins. Thought, desire, deed. All of them. We will view our sin in the presence of God. I think this is what it means when He's going to wipe away our tears. I mean, that's going to be a terrible moment. And He's going to wipe away every last tear of the grief that our sin produces when we see it in light of God's glory. But not only will we see our sins, every last one, He's going to apply His grace to every last one. Jesus will say, you've been seated with me by faith for some years, but now you're here. And let me tell you again, your sins are paid for. All your sins will be laid out before you and He will go down the line and He will say, paid for, forgiven, forgiven, paid for, paid for. It will be the fullness of the Gospel ministered to us. A waterfall of grace. And I think that's when we will be fully and finally cleansed. Fully and finally received into glory forever. Well, how do I know that will be me? We cling to His promises by faith. His Word tells you that even as of right now, you have already been seated with Christ, your Advocate and your Savior. We will experience fear and guilt and shame and doubt in this world. And one of the ways that we extinguish those darts is to say, nope, Jesus already saved me. I will not be guilty. I will not let this shame take over. I will not let this fear rule me or this doubt take over me because Jesus already saved me. He already brought me from death to life. He raised me up. He seated me with Him in heaven in Christ. I know I'm a sinner, but Jesus saved me from all of it. And in Him there is full salvation, including getting home. I'm not home yet. I might as well be though, because I'm in Christ and He is in heaven. He already defeated Satan's sin and death. So we're about to take the Lord's Supper in church. Um, and as the bread and the cups are being passed around, I want you to think about something. I want you to think about that day when you stand before God. I want you to think about um, being hooked up to something and all of your sins, past 
uh, and even at the moment, I guess, um, in, in thought, in um, desire, in deed, action. Think about them all. And inevitably, when you're trying to think about them all, some of them will pop into your mind. And every sin that comes in your mind, say to yourself, paid for, forgiven. That's what we're doing in the supper. We're eating and drinking the Gospel. It never gets better than that. That's the best we can do in presenting the Gospel is in the Lord's Supper. And imagine that one day you'll hear Jesus' voice saying the exact same words, paid for, forgiven. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we are deeply sinful. Perhaps we don't know even a portion of it. One day we will, Lord. One day we'll stand before You. We'll be exposed for who we are in and of ourselves. But You won't let us get far in our misery before You pour out the Gospel on us in every nook and cranny uh, to finally and fully purify and cleanse us by Your grace. Lord, we really just need You to strengthen our faith so that we can believe it all the more. There is no better news than Jesus for us. Lord Jesus, will never know the depths to which You went to save us. Um, we just pray that You would help us to believe, uh, strengthen our faith, that You would help us to receive this great grace and that You would transform us to be more like You in response uh, to having received it. We love You, Lord. Give us wisdom and direction from Your Word today. Please guide us and lead us in Your ways. In Jesus' name, Amen.